Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 35 for March 23rd, 2011. We continue our post-the-motion-picture-era series. This will be the 12th episode of this series. And we're covering comic strip number 14 and Marvel number 13. Excellent. And I will be taking the first one. So take us away, I, Ken. Should I, should I take us away, Donovan? Please, do. On the magic bus of the imagination? Sure. Let's do uh, it. I was going to say, head out straight and... Uh, Sail on till morning or something? Yeah, well, you know. Whatever, that away. whatever that away. pilfers from Peter Pan in that, that Star Trek movie. Oh, Peter, that's from Peter Pan? Really? Okay, Yeah. cool. I know uh, that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I never heard it before. But I, I think, see I that think it is because it's, you know, Peter Pan's whole thing is that he never grows up. And then in right. Star Trek Two, that's when he uses it. And that was right after he says he feels young. Or or is Star Trek Two not when he says it? <sighs> I don't remember. It's at, the, it's, at, it's at the end of one of the earlier ones. It could have been two. Yeah, but now I'm thinking maybe it wasn't two. So it definitely wasn't three because things did not look too uh, too positive for the Enterprise at that moment. <laughs> right. All right, so take us away, Ken. Okay. So Star Trek issue number 13, All the Infinite Ways. The writer is Martin Pascoe. Artists... Joe Brzezowski and Tom Palmer. Colors by Carl Gafford. Letterer, Joe Rosen. Editor, Luis Jones. Editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. The cover presents a close-up of a Klingon with a disruptor pointing at a dark-haired woman's face. He has her in a headlock, and she is understandably distressed. Kirk and Spock are off to the right and appear to be entering the room with phasers drawn. The Klingon says, one step closer, and McCoy's daughter dies. Kirk tells Spock to hold his fire. The inside cover is a full-page view of the Enterprise, entering orbit around a planet where a Klingon battlecruiser is already in orbit. Via the captain's log, we find out that they are in orbit around the planet Hesphestus, a resort planet. The bridge crew a conversation tells the... Hesphestus is a neutral planet that the Klingons have equal access to. The Enterprise crew will rotate down to the planet for some well-deserved shore leave at the planet's very pricey resorts. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and two security men beam down to the planet. Spock and Kirk comment that they are looking forward to meeting the Hesphestans, as they are intelligent simians. They make their way to the planet's council chambers, where they meet with the council to discuss possible trade for the planet's dilithium and pergium reserves. As they depart, an attractive woman and a Vulcan man observe the landing party. She is McCoy's daughter, Joanna, and the Vulcan companion looks an awful lot like an older version of Spock. The first day's meetings conclude, and President Mookie offers full use of their facilities to the Enterprise crew. As Kirk leaves the chambers, he is accosted by Kag, commander of the Imperial cruiser Kagolf. He accuses Kirk of deceit in his attempts to obtain the planet's resources for the Federation and that the Klingon Empire will protect against that plunder. Kirk says if his assessment is correct, who will protect the Hesphestans from the Klingons? Chekhov, Sulu, and Spock are preparing to enter the famous Hesphestan Hot Springs when they hear a Hesphestan scream. Chekhov is first on the scene to defend the Hesphestan who is being attacked by a Klingon ba 
bastard. You Klingon bastard. You killed my son. Spock follows into the hot springs mist to witness the struggle. Meanwhile, Kirk and McCoy are having a drink in a bar where they are accosted by McCoy's daughter, Joanna. The meeting is a shock for McCoy, and it does not go well, particularly when the Vulcan companion named Suvak turns out to be Joanna's fiancé. McCoy and Joanna continue to fight, and we find out that McCoy has not been in much contact with her for the past 26 years. While they fight, Suvak sits, then faints to the ground. The fighting ends, and they get Suvak to medical facilities. Meanwhile, at the site of the Hesfestan murder, Kirk is told that Chekhov, as well as the Klingon, are suspects. Kirk informs Scotty that there will be no more shore leave until the murder situation is resolved. Kirk talks to the High Council and convinces them that McCoy should do an autopsy over Klingon objections. McCoy and Joanna are attending to Suvak when he is asked by Kirk to do the autopsy with Dr. Chapel. With test results pending, McCoy turns his attention to the autopsy. The autopsy is observed by two members of the Hesfestan's medical council. McCoy completes the autopsy and reports cause of death was strangulation as expected, but he also found an implant in the base of the skull. McCoy says it looks like a symbiont and asks the two council members to confirm. Dr. Simayan says since this secret is out, they might as well tell the Enterprise crew the full truth. They go on to tell the story of how eons ago they were visited by aliens that implanted the first symbionts into them, which turned them from mindless beasts into intelligent beings. For reasons unknown, the aliens did this to the population and taught them how to manufacture and implant the symbionts themselves. Apparently, they do not believe in redundancy, so they built one secret factory and implantation facility to continue giving their descendants the gift of intelligence. Spock conjectures that the Klingon plan is to destroy the manufacturing center and remove the symbionts from the population, reducing them to mindless beasts and therefore not protected under the terms of the Organian Peace Treaty. At that point, they can take over the planet and its resources. Commander Cog enters at that moment with a disruptor in hand. He says their conjectures are quite correct, and since his ship has the Enterprise in a stasis field, no one will be able to stop him. Sure enough, Kirk is informed by Scotty that the stasis field is knocking out most systems, including propulsion, so they only have four hours until the ship blows up. Cag and two other Klingons prepare to do away with them all when several Hesfestans intervene and end up dying or coming close. Cag loses his men but manages to grab Joanna and make his escape. Kirk and company have to stop the destruction of the manufacturing center and get Joanna back. They first focus on the factory since they only have two hours before it explodes and the entire Hesfestan race will lose their way of life. Since only two people know exactly where the factory is, and they are now dead or wounded, Spock utilizes his amazing and handy telepathic abilities to track the unique, hateful, and aggressive Klingon mental vibes that lead them to where the Klingons are guarding the factory entrance. Kirk and Spock take out the guards and enter the factory to disarm the explosives. As a precaution, they upload the plans for manufacturing the symbionts to the Enterprise computers, which, last time we checked, was going to burn up in the atmosphere in a few hours. In the meantime, McCoy and Chapel get the blood tests back that tell them that Suvak has chiriocystiosis, which is lethal without strombolin, natural strombolin, which they have no access to. Suvak awakens and tells McCoy that he can locate Joanna since their minds joined during his eighth ponfar. McCoy tells him he will die if he tries. They can't find the explosives, so Kirk and company start gathering up all the symbionts they can find 
when Cog enters again with a disruptor in one hand and Joanna in the other. He states that no one is going to escape the blast, including him. At that moment, Suvak jumps the Klingon from behind and uses the last of his strength and holds Cog. Just in the nick of time, the Klingon battlecruiser's D-sized batteries run down to the point that they can maintain the stasis field no longer on the Enterprise. Freed from the field, the Enterprise systems start coming back online to the point they can beam the landing party away from the explosion, but unfortunately without Cog or Suvak. Later, they are able to provide the Hesphestians with computers to download the symbiote blueprints to, and the intelligent apes start to rebuild their facilities. Words from Spock convince the depressed McCoy that he has a chance at reconciling with Joanna. So the story ends with McCoy heading off to try. The end. So did you kind of gloss over the big fight with uh, McCoy and his daughter? Or did I miss it? No. I, well, I talked about it. But and I talked about them continuing to fight until Suvak sitting down and then falling over. Right, but I mean, but then they start fighting again and that's when this story one of the two comments in this story that I thought was a little weird. Well, actually, there's three three things in this story that I thought was weird. Do you mind if I go ahead and talk about those real quick? No, go right ahead. Alright, so in regards to this fight there on page 18, I think this is after he tells her that Suvak's going to die. And then he's basically like, well, maybe this is not so bad because how can you love – how can you marry him because he's a Vulcan and you know he won't even touch you for except for once every eight years. And then she makes a comment that she'll actually – that'll actually be better for her than it was for her mother. At least when my husband doesn't touch me, I'll know why. Mm-hmm. And then McCoy just slaps her across the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that not weird? I mean, one, <sighs> she just – her argument was is that you didn't have enough sex with my mom, <laughs> and that makes him mad enough to smack her across the face. Well, yeah. Well, okay. So I, I did mention the fights because there was a lot of fighting going on, and this is a synopsis. But there were multiple points that she made, one also being that McCoy was always at the hospital so much uh, right. that he had never had any time for the family. So – I, I I did think that particular one about knowing why uh, the husband wouldn't touch her, uh, the mo- the mother that 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 was a low blow, and it's like and yes I do agree I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to slip in there. I mean, what backstory are they trying to tell here? Right, and and to have McCoy like Hold lay his hands on her. I mean, it just seems wrong. Yeah. It's hard to feel sorry for McCoy anymore because that's the way he treats his daughter. Well, not only that, I mean, apparently he hasn't kept in very good contact with her over the past 26 years. I mean, you know, they did mention that he paid for her medical school. He did write or whatever, but sounds like there wasn't too much uh, visiting going on. Right, and this is not the first time we've seen her in these stories because she oh, yeah. was in one episode or one issue of Star Trek the Early Voyages yeah. or I'm sorry Star Trek the Untold Voyages and it was a similar background that she was well, uh, yeah it's at least one other story had her in it Did, was there a, th- a third well, the, the third well, one the, the first one that we read that had his family in it it was yeah. the one with his ex-wife and her name yeah. was Joanna yeah and then later, that was comic strip number three. And then in Ur- Untold Voyages number three, it had his daughter, Joanna, and it was kind of a similar thing where she was, she hadn't seen him in, in years and years and years, and she was yeah. going to go off to be a nurse. And she gets captured by the, uh, uh, what's his face? Yeah, the guy from the Miri episode. Right. Anyway, but when they trot her out, it's the same theme. It's them getting back together for the first time after sure. a long... A departure. Now, the previous one at least was a little positive. This one has a lot of conflict. I mean, this story has a lot of conflict and a lot of negativism. I mean, she doesn't look very good. I mean, there's very few, there's very little positive coming. Positive vibes are not coming from her, and they're sure not coming from McCoy either. So, 
it's not a feel good relationship between those two. Right, and and she's a. I mean, I think that there's more to her emotional state than than what they really lay in here. Because I mean, I think there's more to it why she's deciding to marry somebody who's has no emotions. Because I think maybe she's, you know, maybe she can't relate to her own emotions because she's so negative towards her upbringing that she can't trust men who have emotions. I guess I don't know. I think that's what they were trying to get at, or at least that's what I thought they were trying to get at. So, like, she wanted to have a man just like Daddy or something? Or, or... she wanted a man that couldn't hurt her like her Daddy or something. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, well, you can read a lot, read a lot of things in here. And and it, so, basically, I, I think the writing was pretty good in this comic. I, I think it's a lot better than a lot of comics. Uh, a lot of the comics just really keep things that are light, action-y, not a lot of uh, very complicated themes going on, you know, written for kids. Right. This is has obviously been written a little more for adults. I mean, there's plenty of action, that kind of stuff going on too, but at right. least at least they're taking the audience a little seriously. So I I do like the uh, yeah like the writing. I, I agree with you on that. Just that one conversation with him, that her comment, and that being enough to make McCoy strike her. I mean, that was the, you know, the three panels that I thought really didn't belong. Because I don't see McCoy as being a violent person. And he would beat his own daughter. Or even hit her once. One hit. Yeah, obviously, I mean, for for McCoy to to leave, you know, for 26 years or something, and apparently not, you know, really go back to visit or anything all that time, especially for his daughter, something really nasty must have happened there. In that marriage. Right. And that particular thing that she had mentioned obviously elicited a lot of emotion from McCoy. So who knows all what went on back then, but obviously some nasty stuff. Yeah, I mean, we read the other other book, The the Real McCoy, and then there was that novel, Shadows of the Sun, Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of delve a little bit into their relationship that, you know, McCoy's wife cheated on him. With like their, uh, like one of McCoy's best friends, and then she oh, ends right, up running right. off with him. And I mean, so you know, even different different continuities had kind of the same backstory as to what happened to McCoy and his wife, and where their daughter ended up. Interesting tidbit about the daughter Joanna is that that she was actually created by. DC Fontania and Gene Roddenberry as they were going to do an episode in season three that had Joanna, you know, being the estranged daughter, come on the show and kind of have Captain Kirk and her not necessarily getting together, but, you know, the threat that that would happen and kind of seeing hmm. McCoy as, you know, the crotchety old dad kind of thing. But, but yeah, so, I mean, I guess there was a quote of Roddenberry saying that that was going to be a story, and then it never came up in season three, and it was going to—they were going to do it in season four, but obviously it got canceled. But I just thought it was interesting that Joanna, as a character, had her roots even that far back. So that was the—that was one of the things that I thought was inter- odd about this book. The other one was Joanna says that she met Suvak because she was his private nurse for a mm-hmm. while, uh, and then they got got together or whatever and then when Suvak is kind of delirious and he wants to go save her he says that they met on his eighth pond far which seems odd I mean they met and consummated this relationship at the same time did that seem odd to you that their stories didn't quite match up not really I mean the main point there he was trying to get across is he basically had some psychic leak to her Exactly. Yeah. And through then, uh, through an, through a an implied a sexual act. Right. And then the last thing that I thought was weird, and and these all seem kind of in the same vein, is when McCoy and Kirk are having drinks at this nightclub type thing. Mm-hmm. When uh, when Chekhov has the fight with the uh, Klingon, uh, they kind of look like they're at a strip club. <laughs> they're sitting at a table in like bathrobes, and there's a well, girl. Well, they're they're all in bathrobes <laughs> on this planet. But there's a girl on a table with very little clothes, kind of oh, yeah. dancing yep. around, 
and you're just like, are, are they at a sh strip club? <laughs> and then when Kirk has to go leave to take care of Chekhov, he's like, oh, no, McCoy, you, you stick around and finish your drink. <laughs> uh -huh. I just, again, those three things in this book just kind of like, this is different for what yeah, we're and, and And look at those poor two security guys. They're just like standing there in full uniform, standing up. Well, you notice uh, that the one on the left is not looking at McCoy or Kirk. He's looking at the girl on the table. His head is completely turned. Yeah, yeah. It's turned, definitely. Yeah, sure. So, anyways. So, anyways, those three things I thought were, like you said, not necessarily written for kids, but also some of it I didn't think stayed true to the characters that we've seen in the show. No. No, they they did take them in new directions, didn't they? McCoy, in particular. Right. And yeah, I'll I... be honest with you. Reading these names and hearing you read them to me, I get two totally different... Uh... Pronunciations? Yeah, well, your pronunciation is right. Just when I was reading it and I saw that it was President Mukai, I did <laughs> not hear the word monkey when I was reading it to myself, you know? Oh, that's good news, President Mukai, but it was a weird word, so I just kind of skimmed over it and kind of filed it away. That's his name. And then when I hear you pronounce it, I'm like, his name is Monkey. <laughs> He's a monkey, and his name is Monkey. And then later on, Dr. Simeon, and I'm like, yep. really? <laughs> I, just, I, I was reading it. Yeah, that Dr. Simia, Simia, <laughs> which is suspiciously close to Simeon, yes, yes, I do yes. agree. That that is kind of uh, funny. And speaking of them, I think overall the drawing was was pretty good. Um, the only thing that was a little annoying is they drew the Hephaestans, so they look pretty much just like the Planet of the Apes chimpanzee race. Yep. Um, the glasses and stuff. They look just like the the monkeys from that show. Exactly. And and you know I don't know necessarily off the top of my head how I would draw them differently. I mean they're just so planted in my head is, you know, Planet of the Apes, you know, I grew up with that stuff. It just seems like, you know, there might be a way to put a more unique spin on it, but they didn't. So, I mean, except when they had those little John Lennon glasses on Dr. Simia, I thought that looked a little different, but, but yeah, they looked just like, they drew, they were drawn just like Planet of the Apes chimpanzees. Another thing is, especially in the first time where we see Suvak, I mean, he looks like Spock. <laughs> You know, except a little older with gray temples and that kind of stuff. Now, there are later times where he doesn't look as much like Spock, but it's like, okay, you don't have to draw all the Vulcans to look like Spock. So, yeah, I, I thought they could have had a little bit more creativity there. Give him a squatter face. I don't know, something. Blonde hair? No, not that. <laughs> no, that would be a little bit too creative. Yeah, when I first was looking through this, I thought that it was... Spock's father. Oh. But then when I was actually, you know, that was when I was just thumbing through the book. Mm -hmm. And then when I was reading it, I was like, oh, some other dude. Exactly. So, anyway, I thought they could have been more creative there with their drawings. Other than that, I thought the artwork was pretty good. I think overall, I, I like the book. Yeah. Well, um, well, in regards to the artwork, because I think I might have a different take on it than you. I mean, okay. just look at that last page where... Last page... Kirk and McCoy and Spock are all kind of in the same panel talking. It's the second to last panel in the whole book. Oh, right, right. Yeah, when I was reading this, I didn't no. know who anybody was because Kirk yeah, well. and McCoy look nothing like they're supposed to. And the only reason I knew that that was Spock is that he has giant ears. <laughs> yes, that's true. And but if you but if you look at some of the uh, some of the panels on the same page, you know some of them. McCoy looks pretty much like McCoy, uh, but yeah, there are some other ones where, like, there's that 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 top right hand one where uh, where McCoy is frowning and kind of looking off in the distance as Spock is talking. That doesn't look that much like McCoy either. But, right. It was all. It was very hit or miss. I thought that it was. Yeah. You know, it either looked really good or it just looked like uh, a white dude standing there. And sometimes it seemed <laughs> like they were blonde. Sometimes it seemed like they were darker haired. It was like yeah. they didn't even have that consistent. And speaking of white dudes, when we get to the next comic strip, oh, yeah. 
Okay. So the the last thing I have, uh, and I think you already made a comment about it, but was my goodness, what are the chances that the magic Klingon stasis ray that was able to encapture the Enterprise without any fuss, and then Mm. the batteries just happened to go out? (laughs) That was that was a little weak, I thought. It, it was weak, but when you think about the the killer weapon that the Romulans always had, it's like it took so much power that their cloaking device had to come down, or you know. So they have an awesome weapon, but there's a price for that weapon because it takes too much power. But it um, had 15 minutes before the Enterprise was going to destroy itself yep. because of being in the stasis ray, yep. and then 15 minutes before the Enterprise is going to explode, yep. the batteries run out. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Well, you know, an orbit decay is only so fast. I know. Just... Uh, and by the way, I'm assuming it's because of their orbit decaying, but I, they didn't really explain that. Oh, they didn't explain anything. It just suddenly, it's there, and the Enterprise is going to destroy in four hours. <laughs> it's going to blow up. Yeah, we don't want to say why, but, yeah. You know. Anyways, I understand they had to get that done quick, but I would have rather them found another way to disable the thing. Yeah. True. Uh, Commander Cog, I found to be uh, a little hard to believe. I mean, he was he was way too much of a Klingon cliche, and he just seemed to be way out there doing outlandish things. So, I mean, I, at least at the end, they did call him out. Although I didn't mention it in the in the synopsis in the book, towards the end, uh, they did call him out as as being insane. Especially at the end, when he was, re- was willing to sacrifice himself to blow up the factory. Right, and that, and, you know, I wasn't going to talk about that, but, I mean, that kind of seemed weird, too, that if you destroyed the factory, suddenly the, that whole generation's, I mean, you would still have a whole generation of kids with the implants already that are still going to grow to adulthood before you get another generation who aren't intelligent. So Well, true, but, but the other thing they said in there, which I think is totally whack, whacked, is I think they actually said something about you know either killing or removing the chips from the other inhabitants. Yeah, but I thought they said they couldn't kill them because that would break the treaty. But they they were doing well, it so that they, I don't remember them saying that. But that the, I mean, but it, but it might have it might have broke the treaty. But I mean, that's a good point. I don't remember them saying it though. Well, that's what I was thinking. That? I thought that's why he was going to destroy the factory and let the ape people turn back into apes because. That then there wouldn't be a sentient species on the sh- on the planet, and the Klingons could take it over without breaking the treaty. Yeah, but but to your point, there's there's, I mean, there's I I would think thousands and who knows millions of uh, of inhabitants on this planet. Right. Yeah. So I mean, they said they put they implant the kids when they're very young. So I would I was thinking, you know, maybe a month or two after birth they get it. So I mean, you'd have to wait until that last kid who's only a couple months old dies as being an old man before you could then go in there and take over the planet without breaking the treaty. Just seemed a little odd. It is odd because they did talk about the idea of dealing with that somehow, but I don't, I don't think they explained it very well. But I do like how they mentioned the, the treaty, the Organian treaty. Yeah. And not the first time too. I mean, they, in, in a fair number of these comics, they do make references to it. Yeah, but I think this might be the first time they mentioned it in the Marvel comics because the Maybe. you know the Marvel comics had the stipulation that if it wasn't in the first movie mentioned or seen on screen, that they couldn't use it as they they couldn't use they couldn't use it for continuity. Right, they couldn't use anything from the show in the in the new comic strip well. or the comic books unless it was in the movie. And I guess that's how they could bring Joanna in it because she never actually made it on screen, even though she was part of the series Bible that they wrote for season three. Because that episode was never made, they could then use her. But that's why you don't ever see Romulans or what? anything in the Marvel stuff. What? That? That's weird. Yeah. Well, it's not the first time Marvel's been limited like that. I mean, there was a they had a Battlestar Galactica series. And all they had the rights to was the first miniseries, and hmm. so they couldn't make reference to anything else that happened on the show after that. So they kind of made up their own thing, and they were like saying, okay, from episode – the miniseries until episode one, 
the Battlestar Galactica was stuck in this alternate universe, and then it gets out, and then episode two starts from there. No! <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, because oh, when you're reading those books, you read the letters pages, and the same with the letters pages on here. You'll see you know, people writing in, why aren't you bringing up you know, so-and-so and so-and-so? And they're like, well, that's because they were in the TV show, and we don't have the rights to those characters. We only have the rights for the movie. So... And and wh- why could they bring Joanna? Okay, so because she was never actually on the she, show. Okay, so not just what was in what was in the movie. It could be anything in the movie or anything in the Star Trek universe other than what was in the TV show. Exactly. Yep. Hmm. So that's why they couldn't do hmm. Romulan story. That's why they couldn't do, uh, you know, Khan or anything else that was that actual character or species in the movie or the TV show. Wow. And, and I That's don't know. That's pretty limiting. Yeah, I don't know why they did it that way, but but it's just funny that Marvel, who had the rights to Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica around the same time, both of those series seem to have the same limitations. Wow. They were with some pretty strong limitations. Anyway. All right. And then and, and then you have uh, Gold Key that probably had the rights to do it, but they just didn't frequently <laughs> frequently didn't use it. They just made up their own stuff. Yeah, I do like now that you know, as as of DC, who got the rights after after this series that we're reading, uh, it seems like from that point on, every Star Trek franchise was able to do pretty much anything they wanted to with with older characters or older storylines. As you would think. Yeah, it makes it better. Yeah. All right, anything else on this one? Not a thing, man. All right, let's jump into Star Trek the comic strip that came out in your local newspapers from September 5th, 1982 to October 30th, 1982. So I probably should have mentioned this last week, is that you know Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan came out June 4th, 1982. So we're already, these are coming out you know a good five months after the, the last movie came out. And so this is the first comic strip that doesn't reference the Wrath of Khan, the movie per se, but it, they do wear the new uniforms. So Spock's still alive. So it obviously happens before the Wrath of Khan, but they are sporting the new threads. Cool. This comic strip is not titled, but uh, the writer is Martin Pascal and the artist is Patrick Shigintani. That's a tough one. Yeah. So, like I said, crew wearing the new uniforms. Gotta love it. All right. So the Enterprise is en route to a place called Man Arc 5 to meet with an ambassador of some sort. They're in a hurry, so in their haste, they're going to travel through what is called the Delton Graveyard. Uh, This area of space was once littered with the remains of thousands of ships during the Great Delton War, which I've never heard of, but we're going to go with it. As the Enterprise is passing through, they witness two merchant ships attacking each other. They try to go around the trouble, leaving this little squabble for the local authorities to deal with, when the two ships start attacking the Enterprise and then turn tail and try to run. The Enterprise disables one of the ships with its phasers and then holds the other in a tractor beam to prevent it from fleeing. Kirk orders the beaming of the two captains on from the two ships to the to discuss their issues. The first man, who is called Captain Krieger, arrives, and shortly after that, the second captain, named Regus, arrives with a female lieutenant named Zaya, or Zaya. So Zaya starts whipping her phaser around and threatens to shoot everyone, especially Captain Krieger. Uh, Spock is able to talk her into relenting her weapon, and as everyone's focuses on Zaya, the two captains start planting bombs there in the transporter pad. So they're not actually feuding. This is obviously some sort of ruse to destroy the Enterprise. So Kirk and Spock then start to give the guests a tour of the ship. Zaya and Krieger start fighting there in the hallway. And as they're fighting each other, Regus plants another bomb during the confusion. Once the fight is over, Kirk finds Zia's bracelet, but Spock and Zia has already gone off on a private tour. Kirk takes the guests to the conference room, 
and as soon as he gets there, the bridge calls him to come up and review some unusual scans from an incoming wreckage. Uh, Kirk allows the two guests to join him on the bridge. Once there, they secretly plant yet another bomb. As Zaya and Spock arrive on the bridge, the first bomb goes off in the transporter room, and the two captains, along with Kirk, are beamed over to the merchant ship. Uh, Kirk is taken because he still has the bracelet that Zaya dropped uh, during her scuffle with Krieger. The wreckage that is hurtling itself towards the Enterprise turns out to be an incoming fleet of scavenger ships, ready to pick apart the Enterprise once all the bombs go off. As Kirk, who's on the merchant ship, is demanding that he be released, it is discovered that Zaya is actually Regus's secret daughter. As Kirk gives a long speech about the importance of flesh and blood, the second bomb further disables the Enterprise. Regus eventually breaks down and escapes with Kirk. Once back on the Enterprise, the father and daughter are reunited. On the bridge, Spock is able to eventually disable the last bomb, and we find out that Regis actually planted yet another bomb on Krieger's ship, which then goes off and destroys the ship. Seeing that their leader's ship is destroyed, the scavenger fleet turns back, and Regis and Zaire are handed over to the local authorities. And that's how it ends. I almost had whip flash from how quickly that ending happened. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't go over it, but... Literally, that, that little confrontation on the transporter pad between Zaya and everybody else, it, it must have lasted, like, weeks. <laughs> so, like, every day you get, like, three panels, and it seemed to repeat the same three panels yep. over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, dude, are they ever going to get off this friggin' transporter pad? Something happened. And then when it does happen, it ends very abruptly. Is that what you were going to say, and I stole your thunder? Well, yeah, I, right. <laughs> I was making the point that it ended very quickly, and you made the point about where it went on forever, and then it ended quickly. <laughs> so yes, yes, yeah. It, it seemed like it was it was taken for a, a while to progress, and then all of a sudden, oh, Regis planted a bomb on his on his on his ship. Blast! That's that that problem solved. And then the other hundred ships that are surrounding the uh, Enterprise just decide that because the, the leader's out of the picture, they're all just going to go home and uh, lick their wounds. Well, I didn't get the uh, impression that the, the scavenger fleet had weapons, that they were just going to wait until the, the bombs completely disabled the Enterprise and killed the crew. And then they were going to go in there like insects and start pulling it apart. I, I didn't get the impression. That's possible. That, I didn't get the impression that they were a real uh, fighting fleet. Had weapons like the other two scavenger ships that originally fired on the Enterprise? Right, but didn't hurt. They might have. They might not have had weapons. I didn't get the impression one way or the other. Mm. Could have been. Yeah. But if you got 100 ships, you know, I don't know. Seems kind of wimpy. Yeah, there was enough ships so that they thought it was wreckage, like a big mass of wreckage coming its way. But it was just literally hundreds of little tiny ships. Sure, and then well, obviously big enough to take uh, to take away pieces of the Enterprise. And the other thing is, I mean, the two bombs did go off, the first two, so the Enterprise was crippled. Not as crippled, it's crippled, but everybody isn't dead. So, yeah, they 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 didn't have phasers. Of course, how could these other ships know? Maybe, maybe they didn't. The two blasts did disable the ship. They just didn't disable life support, which is what the third one was supposed to do. It, yeah, so is is life support only housed there on the bridge? So that if you blew up the bridge, Unlikely. suddenly life support for the whole ship is gone? Unlikely. Yeah. You'd think it'd be in engineering. But, right, or, or maybe like you'd have a, a redundant uh, safeguard so that if one... <laughs> Redundancy? You you mean like uh, like factories to make uh, little chips? Yeah. Well, no, just so that if, you know, if the bridge took a good hit, then suddenly everybody else well, on the ship doesn't automatically die. Well, the Enterprise D definitely had an auxiliary bridge. Did the uh, did Enterprise A? Uh, it was never mentioned, but and I think it was always planned that the saucer section could detach from the Enterprise. Oh, really? Yeah. A also cool. Yeah, I think that if you if you like read some of the um, like you know the material that came out 
at the time. I think even the Enterprise, you know, just the NCC-1701 technically could as well. Just oh. what what I read said that it, it couldn't go back together without being in space right. dock, but it it was built that it could detach. Ejected off of it had to. Yeah. Which I always thought was a cool, cool idea. Well, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if your warp reactor, which of course is the most explosive thing on the ship, is in the engineering section, it'd be good to get away from that if if you couldn't eject them. Like, as we saw later in later movies and TV series, you could eject warp cores, but I don't remember them talking much about that in the earlier shows. Uh, yeah, you'd want to get away from it if you could. Right. Not that that helped the Enterprise D. Darn it. Well, that was because uh, the the Duras sisters had the shield configuration, and they could just blast right through it. Well, well, yes, but the thing is, the engineering section, uh, don't you love getting into this kind of stuff? The engineering section was going to have overload on the, uh, on the warp core reactor, and it ended up doing it. And even though they did detach, they didn't detach quickly enough. So the uh, saucer section was hurled into the uh, planet's atmosphere. So well, It didn't help that Troy was driving. <laughs> oh, are you going to say woman driver? Are you going to call a woman driver thing here? No, I'm going to call a Beta Z driver. Uh, Beta Z they driver. They are notoriously oh. horrible drivers. I've heard that. Yeah, don't even, don't even get me started on you know how many times I've seen them smash into a space station here. Run over some poor space whales there. You know, they're just, they're just terrible. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, back to this one. In regards to this whole Delton War causing a huge graveyard of destroyed ships. Right. Uh, the only Delton I've ever heard of was Ilya from Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I thought they depicted her as, or her species as being, you know, pacifists. I uh, think so. And I don't... Okay, so so the scavengers, none of them were Delton? Well... They were just scavengers from other places? I don't know. Because Kr- nobody really looked like like uh, like her. No, they didn't. But, but Krieger calls Zaya a Delton witch when he first sees oh, right. her bo- beam onto the uh, ship. And I, and point, I was like, point. she doesn't look Delton to me, but I'm only basing it on the one person I've ever seen. I thought Zaya's crush on Spock... Which was kind of a gimmick. I thought it was. I, I liked it. I, I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, I so kind there, of glanced over it in the synopsis. Yeah, but right. Yeah, she uh, she would only hand over her gun to Spock because she thought he was a very courageous and good-looking man. And then later on, she makes the comment that she wants somebody to put in a good word for her to him. Yeah. Yep. So so they brought it up a couple times. And, of course, why a young trollop like this would be fine and Spock so attractive, who knows. But I thought it was pretty funny. Well, Joanna, just old, a few uh, minutes ago, thought uh, that her older Spock was quite fetching. Yeah, but, you know, she's got some weird stuff going on. I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't use her as, a, uh, as an adequate measuring stick. <laughs> well, Nurse Chapel always thought that uh, Spock, Spock was pretty dreamy. True, true. And and was it only one alien really found McCoy attractive? The, in the, that hollow world thing? Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the salt vampire thing. No, no, no. That was a, that was an ex. That was an ex girlfriend or something. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, it was something like that. An ex girlfriend or something. That. Uh... Well, whatever. Really, I was talking about that that third season horrendous show. I think if it was for the world is hollow and my eyes have touched the sky, it was like one of the longest titles of a Star Trek episode. And that was a hot brunette on there. She was very cute, and she only had eyes for McCoy. But, yes, everybody got their turn at one point or another being the hottie. Except for Sulu. I don't remember him ever. Oh, there was that guy that would... Oh, oh. I'm hey, sorry. now. Hey, now. No, I, I mean, seriously. I, there was an episode where Chekhov got the girl. Spot got yes. a few girls. Oh, and she was a real pip, wasn't she? The one that liked uh, Chekhov. The the Wild West one, the OK Corral episode? Oh, two of them. There's two of them. Oh, okay. No, I'm thinking about the the Gamesters of Triskelion, where, oh, uh, where they go to... they're like in the gladiator kind of thing. Yeah. 
and this big mannish almost woman <laughs> likes little Chekhov. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, well, anyway. speaking of little Chekhov in this story, um, you know, in this in this timeline, Chekhov is head of security of the Enterprise. Yep. He's not navigator. He's head of security. So Kirk and Spock go to the transporter room to beam over two hostile captains. Right. And they don't take any security. Chekhov's not there. And then when Chekhov on the bridge finds out that there's a woman down there threatening everybody with a phaser, he just sits on the bridge, has his feet up on the on the desk, making little jokes <laughs> about about what's going on down there and I'm like you're not taking your new job very seriously there Mr. Chekhov <laughs> true just seemed weird yeah actually I, I kind of like uh, I kind of like uh, Zia's gun it, it kind of looks like a like a square toaster or something but like like your hand goes in there so anyway it's kind of interesting yeah, well, let's talk about the artwork then. So you like the gun? Oh, what about the rest? Of yeah, it? I like the gun. It's horrid. This is this is this is some of the worst. This is some of the worst art I've ever seen. Yeah, it's. I uh, mean, everybody looks like they're <sighs> wax figures. It it. Okay, so the first time you see, let me see. I think it's the first panel that has Kirk. Right. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So Sulu actually Sulu, except for the fact that he's incredibly white, like he's a vampire, he doesn't look. Absolutely horrible, and Uhura has a weird tan, almost like like flesh quote fresh flesh colored crayon look to her skin tone, which obviously is wrong. And then, oh my God, the first time you see uh, Kirk, it looks like something I would draw when I was in uh, like eighth grade. Yeah. If somebody said, "Ken, draw draw Kirk." You know, uh, eighth grade, seventh grade, sixth grade, fifth grade. I made it come up with that. Yeah, the uh, the artwork is very basic throughout the whole thing. So, like you said last week, I, I gave you a heads up that this was going to be some different artwork, and you know, we both agreed that you know, artwork is not what drives these stories. Um, but you know, it, it, this definitely doesn't help it at all. Yeah, and you know, we we've seen. Over the last several comic strips, that the artwork can be good, even in a Sunday and daily newspaper. Right. Just this really doesn't do it for me. No. Oh, you know what's really interesting? I'm looking at the first two times we see Ohura, and I thought the look was very similar. So uh, I'm looking at the first picture of her. It's a close-up. It looks almost a little bit more like like somebody traced a photo. On that first uh, Sunday paper? On the first Sunday paper. It's color. Uh And it's right above that horrible Kirk picture. Right. So take a look at that picture. Notice where the part is on her hair. And notice that she's looking off to to her right. Right. Then if you go down... To the nine nine episode. To the nine exactly nine nine. It looks like it's black and white. It looks like pretty much the same look on her face, but she, now she's looking the opposite direction, and the part has moved to the left side of her head. Yeah, and they have they have it clo- zoomed in enough that you can't see which side the the little braided thing is on their right. uniform. So you're right. Maybe they just flipped the picture. They flipped the picture. And it looks like something they derived from maybe a photograph of so- or something originally. Yeah, I, I can see it. I don't know. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was just thumbing through here before we started reading it, I was kind yeah. of excited about this story because I saw the pictures of Zaia holding the gun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't read anything about it, so I didn't know the context. And I was hoping that this was going to be that bounty hunter that we saw several oh. stories ago. That was on that mushroom planet with the, sure. the little guys. Yep. Because, uh, you know. Kind of like a, a Boba Fett kind of look to her right. at first. Yeah. So when I was going through here and I see that she beams on and then suddenly she pulls out a gun and starts waving it around. I'm like, oh, great. They're going to bring her back. And then when I started reading it, I'm like, oh, no, that's not her. Yeah. So yeah. I'm still holding out that maybe she'll show back up. But my uh, my hopes are waning a little bit. Well, different people are in charge of writing and production now. True. Right? 
Yeah. The strip. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was odd that the first bomb blew up one transporter room and it knocked out all transporter ability. I know in the original series, they only went to the same transporter, or so it seemed. Mm -hmm. But don't they have more than one transporter room? See, I had the same question, because I honestly don't know. Uh, I know that the Enterprise-D, they make reference to having multiple transporter rooms. Yep. But I don't know how many transporter rooms they have on the Enterprise-A, or this is not the A, but this is the original Enterprise, but I honestly don't know. I would assume there would be more than one, but... You would hope so. I mean, it's a pretty good, pretty good sized ship, and when they want to evacuate people, you need more than one. Right. Plus, hello redundancy, but. Yeah. Right. But that would make it less interesting in a story like this if you had multiple ones. At least the pirates or whatever you want to call them didn't have some sort of stasis ray to just stop the Enterprise and <laughs> throw it in four hours without explanation. Exactly. And then and then would would release them because their batteries ran dry at just the right time <laughs> to allow a beam out before an explosion kills the main characters. That would that would suck. Yes, that would. Although, you know, Krieger was a pretty main character and they blew him up pretty easily. <laughs> oh, for the for the Scavenger Wars TV show, as opposed to this one. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, the I, I thought this whole plot to have these little bombs planted and have a hundred ships converge and have your two ships act like, like you're infighting or something. And by the way, if you were really in a hurry and you were cutting across this part of space, why the heck are you stopping to try to work out a dispute between two two scavengers? I mean, well, anyway, I don't well, whatever. They did. But my they, main... they were going to try to go around it, but then they ended up attacking but, the Enterprise. Well, yep, okay, fine. So, uh, but then but then they're trying to work out the dispute between the two scavengers that are that are that that are having issues. It's like, what? Anyway, but but my main point that I wanted to talk about is this all seems like a pretty involved plot. I mean, the Enterprise just came into this part of space. They're trying to cut across it quick. Um, I don't know how, you know, how long they've go- been going through the scavenger yard, but at least the way the story narration is going, it doesn't seem like they've been in all that long. And then all of a sudden, these scavengers are able to come up with the plan, uh, get the explosives put together, stage the ships, know what they're going to do with the um, the story to try to get onto the ship and plant the explosives. I don't know. I, I just thought this was a pretty far-fetched that they were able to organize all this. Unless, of course, this was uh, a plan that they had come up with ages ago, and the Enterprise just happened to be the first ship that fit the bill. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't really understand the whole secret daughter thing. I thought that was a little huh? uh, yeah. not necessarily needed, and, and maybe the only reason why they put that in there is because... We know that Kirk's going to have a son in Star Trek Two, and everybody reading this yeah. has probably already seen Star Trek Two five months ago. Right. I don't know. It just seemed weird. Well, and and the only the only reason I see for it is that the storyline had to get Kirk back to the Enterprise. Somebody had to get him there, and this would be a motivation for Regis to to do it. It would be a motivation. It would. It gives him a reason to do what he did. Right. Yeah, and not to keep harping on the artwork, but they drew Krieger and Regis the exact same way. They're wearing like a Jedi hood, and they have the little Obi-Wan Kenobi beard. Sure. And so the only time I could really ever tell them them apart was on the Sunday paper when uh, Krieger was wearing green and, and the other guy was wearing brown. Blue. It's kind of. I see. I see green and blue. Yeah. In, in, in blue. the in the panel I'm looking at. Right. I, who it could have been brown in another panel easily. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I was kind of thumbing through here. I, I do see them reusing that shot of Ahura quite a few times, and also that one of Sulu where he's kind of has his head turned across his right shoulder. Oh, really? Yeah. They reuse <laughs> those two panels quite a bit, and I'm sure yeah. there's more. Those are just the two popping out at me. Right. So. Uh, we're going to put this at the beginning, but I found out that the uh, Peter Pan reference is actually from Star Trek Sixth uh, 
undiscovered country. Oh. So that was the one where at the end Kirk says to Sulu where to go that away and yeah cuz they they don't want to, you know, cuz they know that they're supposed to go and go back to space dock and they're going to retire the enterprise. Oh, right, and right, he, right, right. He tells uh well who was the uh was Sulu on the ship at that time or was Sulu on the Excelsior? Whoever was driving. Yeah. Exactly. So Anyways. So it was from six? It was that long? Yeah. It was from six? Yeah, it's like one of the last lines in Star Trek. Uh, movie series. Movie series, huh. right. Cool. So anyways, anything else on this issue, this this comic strip? No. No, there's nothing else. So did you have uh, All right, so, what's been happening in the universe? Yeah. So, Star Trek universe? Yeah, so the Marvel series came out April 1981. And also that month, Phantom Books came out with their last Star Trek novel. It was entitled Death's Angel by Kathleen Skye. And I have never read it. I haven't read any of the Bantam books, to tell you the truth. I've read all, um, all the ones I've read have been the pocket books. But basically it looks like, ironically enough, they're do- on a mission in the Delta Gamma Quadrant, which is funny because we just read a story about uh, them being in the Delta Graveyard. But uh, basically it's like... Some people get affected by some strange flowers and start going crazy and dying and whatnot. So I, I haven't read it. I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but those books are kind of hard to find sometimes. Mm. So that's all for uh, for that month. Cool. Cool. So well, next week we will get back together and go over Untold Voyages number four and the 15th comic strip. Which I just kind of looked through, and uh, same same guys. So, <laughs> be looking forward to it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Ken? No, except that uh, having only two publications to review, uh, we have come in at a recording time of an hour and three minutes, which we will uh, edit as appropriate. So uh, we should be under an hour. Yay. Yay! A nice brief one to go along with a brief uh, comic strip. Right. You know, we have gotten a few posts on our Facebook page, so... Really? Yeah. Excellent. It is cool. So somebody posted a link to Star Trek Night of the Living Trekkies. Ah. There was a trailer for that book, and it's actually pretty funny. I recommend anybody giving it a look. I posted a picture of that strip club scene from the earlier episode issue this, this episode, and... We've gotten some people making comments on that. So at least somebody's out there watching it. Cool. Love it. I have to go and hit the page and uh, take a look and see what they have to say. Yeah. Do so. And not only that, uh, I would love to see that. The trailer? That trailer. Yeah, it's actually really funny. You know, for a book trailer, you could tell somebody spent some money on it. It looks pretty good. Now, now this is the Night of the Living Trekkies. So this is the one where... It's it's not the crew or anything like that. These are Star Trek fans yeah, that a, turned into. Yeah, they're at a Star Trek convention in Austin, Texas, and a zombie epidemic breaks out. There you go. So I didn't know, but the book's actually uh, co-written by Kevin J. Anderson, who has written quite a bit of Star Wars novels. So uh, all the more reason why I think I might be picking that one up. Good. Yep. That's I. I think I might be too. All right. Well, especially since uh, we're only a few weeks out from reviewing Star Trek Infestation, which is the Star mm. Trek zombie two-parter from IDW. Very much looking forward to that. As am I. They, I've already read them. They're they're quite good. Good. All right. So until then, uh, or until next week, take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.
Let's get the hell out of here.